0: Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to Simon Rosenblum-Larsen. Simon is a relief pitcher for a minor league affiliate of the Tampa Bay Rays and the program director of the nonprofit organization More Than Baseball. He just wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post that was called I'm a Minor League Pitcher, Why Can't Baseball Pay a Living Wage? Also, I've got some choice words about the latest developments with Brittany Griner, Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards, and more. But first, let's talk to Simon Rosenblum larsen Simon, I guess I just wanted to start before we talk about the issues in minor league baseball. If you could tell my audience a little bit about yourself, I mean, where you're from, and how did you uh, become a baseball player? Yeah, so I
1: was born and raised in Madison, Um Grew up there, uh, spent my life sort of loving baseball, um, but was never all that great at it um, until I was a junior, senior in high school. I grew a bit, um, started getting recruited for colleges, uh, ended up getting recruited to go play at Harvard. um, Played there, wasn't very good my freshman year, um, but really just loved the game, um, put a lot of work in. And by my junior year, uh, I was getting calls from some MLB scouts and was drafted in the 19th round of the 2018 MLB draft. Um, So I've been playing. I was signed by the Tampa Bay Rays uh, and have been playing since then. Um, Played four years in the minor leagues. um, Played all the way from short season A-ball, low A, high A. uh, Played in the Arizona Fall League, in the Gulf Coast League, in double A. Um, sort of been all around the minor league system since I started my career and, you know, really seen a lot of the sport, but, um, yeah, that's sort of what drew me into baseball, but also into sort of the advocacy and activism work that I've been doing.
0: When did you start doing advocacy and activism? Like in general, in life, were you politically active in high school or college, or has this come out of your work, um, or experiences as a minor league pitcher?
1: Uh, No, I mean, in Wisconsin, I grew up in the sort of Act 10 uh, labor era of Wisconsin when uh, public sector unions were cut by uh, Governor Scott Walker. And that was my sort of coming of age in politics, Um, sort of seeing the power of, you know, 100,000 people protesting at the state Capitol. Um, I was down there, my dad was a labor lawyer. And so, uh, you know, I'm from a family that was pretty cognizant of political issues and and of labor in particular. Um, and starting to play baseball and seeing some of the stuff that players are going through is a pretty clear, like, this is something that needs to get changed. Um, and something that i started looking at, you know, and the minute I was drafted, basically, um, some of the conditions I saw even the first week or two of professional baseball were really eye opening to me.
0: Mm-hmm. See, I was down there at the Capitol in Madison as well during those protests. So, you know, I, I thought you, I thought you looked familiar. No, I'm just kidding <laughs> about that part. Uh, we we had some company down there for sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then after I left Madison, I was one of the people ordering pizzas to send down to the protesters. Of <laughs> part of that operation. It was a really powerful moment for for at least a,
1: you know I was uh, you know 14 years old, 13, 14 years old, and it was definitely an awakening to sort of, yeah, I mean, the power of activism, but also some of the, like, really deep challenges that labor faces
0: in the United States. Right. Systemic challenges, legal challenges. I mean, it's they don't make it easy for for the side of the laborers and they never have. (laughs) That's true. Directly from uh, from that first week then. So you're. You you get, I mean, what was the reaction, first of all, when you got drafted? I mean, that must have been, for a moment, felt like a dream come true. And then how long did that feeling of it being like a dream, how long did that last for you?
1: Frankly, it's still going on. It still feels surreal that I get to play baseball for a living. Um, I, I love the game. Um, I grew up wanting to be a professional baseball player. I mm-hmm. never thought it was going to be a possibility. And, and here I am, you know, at, at 25 years old, still getting to play baseball. Um, So that feeling of like, this is one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me is still the case. That being said, the fact that you love your job and the fact that you are pursuing something that gives you joy doesn't mean you should be underpaid uh, or paid poverty level wages for it. So that first week I show up uh, and the first night, actually I'm shown my room and the teams are setting up housing for players as they arrive. And I, get to my room and it's a probably an eight foot by 12 foot room with two beds in it one bed is a twin bed on the right hand side of the room and on the left hand side of the room is a cot and i'm sharing a room with a player who is at the same level the year before so i'm getting the cot because i'm the new guy uh, and in the middle of the night i wake up to my cot collapsing <laughs> on the ground of the room so uh, that like first, basically the first night of professional baseball, you know, I get to pitch, I'm under the lights, the crowd's cheering. It's this romantic moment. And I get back into my room and I'm sleeping on a cot, uh, that collapses in the middle of the night. So it was that sort of dichotomy that really struck me, um, the minute I entered football. Mm.
0: How, how difficult is it to organize given, um, some of the, language slash cultural barriers on a minor league team like the percentage of players who are directly from latin america are a very very high number i mean what's i mean i'm i'm blanking on the number it's about it's about a quarter yeah so actually sorry go
1: ahead
0: oh no no don't please I, i was wondering if you could explore that though a little bit like what like? How are the conditions compared to what some of these players from Latin America are used to, coming from the baseball academies, particularly in the Dominican Republic? Um, does it become difficult uh, to organize over language and cultural barriers? Uh, w- where is the the energy to see better uh, conditions coming from?
1: Yeah. So uh, in terms of the demographics of baseball uh, amongst players in the United States, currently it's about twenty five percent Latin American, but. Keep in mind that there's currently 30 academies in the Dominican Republic where there's, you know, 1,200 plus minor league baseball players who are signed with major league baseball teams still playing. So those are a part of our player cohort as well. So you have about, I mean, really close to 50% of players are from, you know, Latin America, Spanish speaking backgrounds. Um, And a lot of those players, so definitely there's energy amongst, uh, you know, the American born players. They see that they're making less than they could make at McDonald's and they're frustrated with the working conditions. But I will also say that there's a huge amount of energy amongst the Latin American player community, um, and I, I speak Spanish. I, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking with these players, and their feelings are are quite similar. I mean, they they they're trying to send home money to their families every month. They have families back home to support. They have, you know, everything else: families, kids, lives. They have to work second jobs in the off season. They struggle to find places to train. It's the same thing, um, regardless of a player's background. Um, But I will say that like some of the conditions that players are dealing with, even in the Dominican Republic, those players are being paid less than $3,000 a year for their work. Um, The lowest paid minor league player in the United States is making about $4,800 a year for their work. So you're looking at, I mean, some really, really low-paid athletes, um, and especially the younger players in the Dominican Republic, I mean, they're taking home basically nothing um, for a year's worth of work. And so in terms of organizing or having conversations with players, like, The frustrations are universal and we did a player issue report through more than baseball. We surveyed over 800 minor league players. And the challenges are fairly universal, right? Players feel that salaries are the biggest issue in the sport by a long shot. Um, players feel like, you know, their teams are letting them down regardless of whether they're American or Latin American. There are some specific differences between the ways players view some parts of the game. Um, job satisfaction is higher amongst Latin American players than American players. Um, in general, I mean, the issues are the same, regardless of the background of the player.
0: You know, reading your article in The Washington Post, which was terrific, by the way. Um, Thank you. Th- the one thing that popped immediately is seeing that those numbers of $4,800 for rookie ball, 14000 grand a year for AAA. Wow. Um how are you expected to live on that? I mean there there has to be some sort of formal justification by Major League Baseball for why they're paying you so little. I mean th- that that's not that's not survivable income in this country. So wh- right. what is yeah. their justification for that?
1: So they view us as seasonal workers. Uh, they view us as working from uh the day we first play a game not spring training but the day we first play a game to the last game of this year the year so it's about a six-month season and they view us basically as seasonal apprentices um, as our job and so that's how they justify these really low wages. Um, what i will say is that our uniform player contract and this is a quote from the contract that i pulled this minor league uniform player contract obligates player to perform professional services on a calendar year basis regardless of the fact that salary payments are to be made only during the actual championship playing season in which the player performs. So teams are expecting players to, they're obligated to perform professional services year round, but are classifying players as seasonal employees. And so it's this like, and, and this is all sort of legal because of what happened to the Save America's Pastime Act, which exempts minor league players from minimum wage and overtime laws. But you see in the court case that's going through the courts right now, the Senate versus Major League Baseball case that you may or may not be familiar with, a number of minor league players formed a class and have sued Major League Baseball for back pay for uh, spring training and for uh, extended spring training pay, basically claiming that they were working during that time. And, you know, they've been successful in that case. Um, They Major League Baseball after that case was filed began lobbying Congress to exempt minor league players from the Fair Labor Standards Act. And so you see that exemption go through in the Save America's Pastime Act that now provides Major League Baseball with the grounds, the legal grounds, to pay players below minimum wage, regardless of whether they're working full-time or not.
0: Wow. I'm just, given how high the salaries are at the major league level and how low they are at the minor league level, I mean, that must create an incredibly I don't, I don't even know, like some, I've ne- I can't, I'm trying to think of some sort of comparison, but the cutthroat tension of making it to AAA and knowing you're that close to these astronomical salaries while making 14 grand a year at AAA, I mean, that must completely distort team culture, or yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure it creates pressure to to cut corners, to do whatever you have to do, because we're not talking about big margins of difference between AAA and a major league roster, are we?
1: Yeah, no, I think a lot of AAA players are major league quality players.
0: Um, and
1: certainly there's some, in- there's this really, really big incentive to do anything you possibly can to make it to the major leagues. And so players will sacrifice almost anything to get there. Um, and, I, you know, there's, there's been people that have talked about some PED crises going on with young players in, you know, the minor leagues and in some academies. Um, those things are a direct result of massive income inequality between major league and minor league players. And so that gap is unlike anything else, as far as I'm familiar with, any economy, um, to see that enormous pay gap between workers who are pretty close to equally as skilled Um, Is something that it's, it's unfamiliar, but it does distort a lot of things. Um, There's, you know, I mean, players give their whole lives to this game um, and to have it taken away basically by luck. If a guy in the big leagues get, gets hurt and you happen to be the next guy up at the time, like that's your break. And that's a break that will change generationally the wealth that you'll be able to generate.
0: Yeah. I mean, the the ripple effect, particularly for people coming from the Dominican Republic must must feel more like a, a tidal wave than a ripple effect. Like the ability to make it that one last step between AAA and the pros. I mean, it, it feels almost uh, almost perverse, like some sort of, you know, some sort of like running man reality program from a dystopic future. Like if you make it to this level, you're going to make, you know, six, seven figures, maybe even eight figures. But if not, you're going to make 14 grand a year at AAA or 4,800 a year at Rookie Ball. I mean, that's... And that sounds like something that Ayn Rand would come up with in, in an acid trip or something. I mean, it's, it's terrible.
1: Yeah, I mean, some people will call it a meritocracy, but at some point, like it's it's you're disadvantaging players at the young at the lower levels because they can't even afford to train. Well, we found that players are paying. They're paying almost three hundred dollars a month in the off season to train minor league players. And those that those funds are coming out of their pockets. So they're working off season jobs. Over half of minor league players we surveyed had jobs in the off-season. And those common jobs were, you know, coaching baseball teams. They were driving Uber Eats or DoorDash and they Mm -hmm. were doing construction or manual labor. And so like you're actually, I mean, say nothing of the economic inequality of the argument, but you're taking away players' ability to develop as baseball players by paying them poverty level wages. So your advantage, you're providing the players the resources at the high levels, at the major league level and the players that sign in the first or second round of the draft, you're, they have the resources to train like professional athletes. The rest of the minor leagues are working second or third jobs in the offseason just to pay their bills and then finding a place to train on top of that. So that can mean like, you know, you go to a planet fitness or a high school gym in the offseason, and you, you know, that's your professional workout facility for the year. Um, so uh, yeah, in, in my mind, like, there are lots of arguments from a justice perspective to make why minor league players deserve a living wage. But even from teams' perspectives, it doesn't make any sense to me why they wouldn't want to pay their players in order to train efficiently in the off season.
0: God, this is such so similar to the discussions they're having right now in the WNBA about players Absolutely. you know, having to go to places like Russia and Turkey to supplement their incomes and what that actually does to the quality of the game itself. That they're forced to these global schedules. Um, yeah, the,
1: the National Soccer League, they had a campaign that they it was the no more side hustles campaign.
0: Hmm. Um it was start. a
1: great, it was a really great campaign.
0: Yeah. It's called No More Side Hustles.
1: Yeah, it was that it was like a hashtag no more side hustles,
0: um, demanding that the players
1: were paid enough to not have to work second jobs. Um, I think it's a similar thing for a lot of athletes, and you're seeing it change, right? I mean you see even at the minor league hockey levels, right? Players are making enough to live on at the G league and the NBA players are making enough to live on. They just uh, recently certified a union in that uh, the NBA G league. So you're seeing representation and players speaking out and affecting change onto the professional sports market. You're seeing it with NCAA players, right? NCAA players now have their image licensing rights, something that minor league baseball players don't have. Um, and so you're seeing, you know, players are beginning to speak out for themselves They're beginning to realize that they have power and that's, you know, affecting change on an industry that's been backwards for a very, very long time.
0: No, indeed. Indeed. So the disrespect feels really epic and overwhelming. I mean, what what keeps you in the game?
1: It, part of, I mean, I've asked myself this question a number of times. Um, one being that this is something that I grew up dreaming about and you don't throw away your childhood dreams just like that. The second being that I'm lucky enough to have skills to get an off-season job that I have a college degree, right? I went to a, a, you know, a a university that gave me privileges that not every player has. I can earn money in the off-season that allows me to support myself. And that's part of what allows me to stay in the game financially. Um, And then the other part of it is that, you know, I, I see baseball as this vessel for social change and the capacity of an athlete to use your platform for good is incredible. And It's something that, you know, I've spent a lot of time with, but at the end of the day, it comes down to the fact that I love the game and I wouldn't want to do anything else. Um, And Mm -hmm. if I can make ends on my own in the offseason and I can continue to play this game, I want to do that.
0: No, that's right there. So talk to us a little bit about uh, what is More Than Baseball.
1: Yeah, so More Than Baseball is a nonprofit organization that I co-founded with a couple of former players um, back in 2019. Um, And we got together and we were like, something needs to give at the minor league level. And what is there that we can do uh, to start changing those things? And so the first thing that we did was sort of evaluate what players lack. Uh, And the answer is a lot of things. Um, Obviously, fair salaries, um, you know, feasible incomes, but support systems outside of that, too. So players are given very little assistance if and when their career ends. Um, they're basically said, good luck, uh, given a pat on the back and a plane ticket home. Um, oftentimes you'll have players who have spent six or seven years in the game who don't have a college degree, who may not have even started college. Some don't even have high school diplomas. And they're you know, leaving the sport with very few job skills and pretty much nowhere to turn. Um, and so More Than Baseball provides support for those ball players through career transitioning services, uh, through some sort of educational pathways that we've worked out, um, we have some advisors that help players with that. We've provided English classes to players who are Spanish-speaking players that want to continue to work or, you know, find jobs in the United States. Um, we've helped players with visas, players that are interested in staying, particularly from Venezuela. Um, they're eligible for TPS visas, so we've helped players apply for that. And so that's the sort of support network that we provided. But in the long-term vision, we understand that support is not what's necessary to create systemic change, right? We're treating symptoms of a larger problem. And so as we move forward, you know, we understand that like players need support now, but players also need a systemic solution and want a systemic solution. And so, you know, our issue report that came out a couple of weeks ago, and you can find it on our website, uh, morethanbaseball.org, but that issue report, it shows us that players have serious problems with the system of minor league baseball. They have challenges. They want it. They want changes to the contract structure. Players are under contract for seven years at the minor league level. So myself... I'm under contract so I'm 28 years old. And at 28, I'm past my prime as a baseball player. And so, you know, players want to see changes there. Players want to see changes to salaries, obviously. The housing system that was implemented this year, MLB uh, pay, it, it chose to pay for all minor league housing policies after minor league players began advocating against some of the housing that players were forced into in past years. Um, mm-hmm. That housing policy was implemented pretty poorly across the league. Um, you know, players in, you know, 25, 26 year old players sharing a room with another ball player and they're not allowed to live with their families throughout the year, right? There's some of these hurdles that players are seeing and telling us that are systemic changes that need to happen in the sport that can't just be solved by support mechanisms. So more than baseball, while we began as sort of this support organization for minor league players, as we've built a player network, as we've talked to more players, it's clear that they want systemic changes and we're going to help try to deliver
0: those. Wow. Now, I wonder if you have a message. Um, I know we have people who listen to this show from the MLB Players Association, and their name has sort of been conspicuously silent in this interview. What do you think about what their approach to minor league baseball has been, and what would be your message to the MLBPA?
1: I don't have a strong message to them. I think major league baseball players have supported our efforts at various times. Um, We had, you know, Adam Wainwright early on in our efforts during the COVID pandemic to provide players with financial support gave us $250,000 to run a player grant program. Uh, we received $500,000 from the MLB Players Trust, which is an affiliate of the Major League Baseball Players Association, to run more grants for minor league players. They have supported minor league baseball players at various times, and minor league baseball players have supported them. And so it's it's a matter of building solidarity. Um, I have no you know, formal statement to say to the MLBPA, but I think it's a matter of building solidarity between players. Um, major League Baseball players and Minor League Baseball players have the same interests. If Minor League Baseball players do better, Major League Baseball players are going to do better. And Major League Baseball and the players have have struggled with things like service time manipulation and with players taking big contracts early on in their careers because they're not getting a payday till late in their careers. And what I will say to that is some of those things have roots in the system of minor league baseball. If minor league players are under contract for seven years, and then they they elevate themselves to the major leagues and they start a major league contract, oftentimes teams will have 10 plus years of control of that player, so they're not reaching free agency until their mid-30s. And so what you're seeing is the system of minor league baseball, major league baseball is built on this system that's exploitative, and it's leading to worse results for major league players. So I think the idea that there's disparate interests between minor and major league players is just totally untrue. Um, If minor league players do better, major league players do better. And that's, you know, fundamentally why I think there's solidarity between the two groups and solidarity that will continue to be developed in coming years.
0: Would a union of minor league baseball players be um, something that you think is seeable, doable, desirable in this, in the years ahead?
1: Yeah. I mean, collective action has created change already. Um, There's a lot of hurdles to unionization. Um, We talked about a couple of them, the sort of diverse group of players. Uh, It would be the largest union in professional sports in the world. There's 6,000 plus minor league players. Um, Players are working in a legally sanctioned monopoly economy. So you have minimal labor power. Um, And there's, so there's a lot of hurdles to organizing players formally, but I will say that collective action has already created change. And so pretty comfortably like if players are speaking out and if players are working together to make change, change is going to happen. And the more players see that, the more that's going to continue to happen.
0: Mm, good stuff. Um, you know, I was really shocked to see you don't have name NIL rights as minor league players. Is, is that is that true?
1: Yeah, so our contracts, uh, the teams own our image and likeness. Um, so we do not have what? the ability to monetize our image or likeness.
0: That was really shocking to see because you know that that was held up as such a profound injustice at the collegiate sports level, so much so that change has finally come. And yet you never really heard anybody say, yeah, this moves well beyond college. This is something that exists in the minor leagues of baseball as well. I mean, it seems like that should be something that we're doing right now because there is like a public reckoning with what it means yeah. for people to not have these rights.
1: No, absolutely. And, and the fact that it's denied to, you know, we're the only professional athletes for whom it's denied um, these image and likeness rights. And, and frankly, like, I will say that teams are not enforcing these uh, boundaries all that much, but in our contract, it says very clearly that a player does not have the rights to monetize their image and likeness rights without direct express written permission from the club. Um, And that is something that just frankly is so 1940s that like, I can't even fathom its existence in modern baseball. And the other part of the contract too, that's sort of dug into it pretty deeply is that any grievance with the contract. So if a team does call you out for using your image and likeness rights, or if a team you know, does, you wanna push back on the contract in any way, file a grievance, that grievance is gonna be, the, the arbitrator of that grievance is the commissioner of baseball, according to the contract. And so you have your employer deciding what your contract means in a dispute with your employer if you were to file a grievance there. And so there's these like arcane sort of totally archaic parts of this contract that just don't make any sense in the modern world.
0: Man. Oh, wow. That's very intense. So um, you've been really generous with your time. Just a couple more questions. Um you know, recently, you know, people have seen that there's been a real spate of high-profile unionization efforts, uh, places like Amazon, of course, uh, Starbucks, of course. Um, do, do instances like that help your work?
1: Yeah, I mean, labor, if labor does well, labor does well. Um, and the more power that, you know, the pandemic showed a lot of workers what their real value is. Um, and I think Minor league players have seen that and have started sort of speaking out more and more and more and more. So just recently, uh, a petition was submitted to Major League Baseball signed by over a thousand minor league players demanding back pay in spring training, right? We didn't get paid in spring training this year. You don't get paid during the off seasons. You don't get a paycheck from September to mid-April. And so players got together and they signed a petition and submitted it to Major League Baseball via an organization called Advocates for Minor Leaguers. Over a thousand of them signed it. And so to get a thousand minor league players on board, signing a petition and submitting it to Major League Baseball to demand change is something we've never seen in the sport before. And so, if I, I can't say what's directly related to what, but to see workers like Amazon, workers at Amazon, workers at Starbucks standing up to big, powerful corporations, I can't imagine that doesn't give minor league players energy. And so, it's things that we talk about, right? In the clubhouse, these conversations are happening. Current news, current events are talked about. And so, you know, the, the Starbucks, the Amazons of the world, they're getting into clubhouses, they're getting into player conversations and it's changing the way players view themselves and their values.
0: Mm, that's fascinating stuff. So yeah, th- th- thank you so much for your time, It's been really helpful. Is there anything we're missing that you'd like to add?
1: Yeah, I mean, the last part of it is sort of this, the op-ed that I published calls for a living wage for minor league players. Um, and as a part of that op-ed, uh, there's a petition included in the op-ed. You can find it on the More Than Baseball website. But uh, it's a petition, you know, where fans can go if you're you know, listening to the show, if you're interested in supporting minor league players, you can go sign the petition. You can support our efforts, be it minor leaguers paid a living wage. Um, and yeah, I mean, absolutely, there's there's legislation going on right now. So uh, Senator Sanders introduced the Save American Baseball Act, um, which goes after MLB's antitrust exemption. Didn't talk about that much, but part of the reason minor league players are paid such low salaries is because they're in a legally sanctioned monopoly. Economy um, And MLB has, you know, there's no competition for wages. Uh, And so players are being paid whatever MLB wants them to be paid. And that's in part due to the MLB antitrust exemption. Senator Sanders bill goes after that. Um, There's a bill in California, uh, introduced by Senator Josh Becker that um, provides minor league players with basic workers rights, Uh, you know, requires you know, maximum contract lengths of four years, a living wage for players, um, and, and following California's minimum wage laws, uh, which is, you know, a, it would be a huge step forward because there's a number of minor league teams in California. So there are policy solutions that fans can support. You can sign the petition. Um, you can just follow the issues and be outspoken about it. It's something that, you know, MLB's power comes from its fans. Uh, you are its economic driver. And so,
0: um,
1: you have the capacity of a fan to create change in this in this industry as well.
0: Mm. And one last question for you, Simon. We always ask people this on the show: uh, thoughts on music, buddy? What are you listening to these days? And also, my own curiosity: what gets, what's the typical music that gets listened to in your uh, in your minor league locker room?
1: It it'll depend on the day. There's a lot of country music. I'm not a, the biggest country music fan. I listen to a ton of Jason Isbell, though. Uh, that's something ah. I'm listening to a lot. Today. Um, there's a lot of Latin American music, um, so there's, you know, obviously half the minor leagues are from Latin America, so we listen to, you know, the popular artist Bad Bunny, um, there's a Dominican rapper into El Alpha that's very popular, um, I love Rosalia's new album, um, it, was a, it was a great album, and some of her older albums as well are brilliant. Uh, And then I listen to a ton of classic rock, so I've been on a Led Zeppelin kick lately.
0: (laughs) Nice, nice. And do people, like, introduce each other to different kinds of music in the locker room? Is there a lot of cross-cultural communication?
1: Oh, yeah, a ton. Um, You walk into the weight room at a minor league
0: facility, and it could be anything
1: from, like, classic rock to heavy metal to, uh, you (laughs) know— You'll, you'll hear, like, bachata and merengue, and you'll hear reggaeton, and you'll hear, like, all sorts of across the musical spectrum country. It's a really unique workplace, and, yeah, music is one of those things that's shared amongst all cultures in baseball.
0: It's awesome. Hey, Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck on this struggle. Anything we can do to help along the way, don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you, Dave. This has been fun. This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look, Trevor Reed, a former U.S. Marine, was detained in Russia for three years and served two of a nine-year sentence after being convicted on charges of endangering the, quote, life and health of Russian police officers. He has maintained his innocence and his supporters, including the U.S. government, have long classified his trial as a sham. Reed was given the chance at a reduced sentence if he pleaded guilty and instead said, I would rather stay in prison an honest man than walk away tomorrow a liar and a coward. The State Department told his terrified parents, Paul and Joey Reed, to stay calm, keep quiet, and let the diplomatic experts do their jobs. But as the days turned to weeks, months, and years, their patience wore thin. Then as Russia's invasion of Ukraine shredded diplomatic connections between the United States and Russia, and news emerged of their son's tuberculosis, as well as an injury sustained in prison, the Reeds had had enough. They set up a website. They gave interviews. They even picketed the White House. Now, despite the current geopolitical hell and the rapid reimposition of the Cold War, Trevor Reed has been set free. Reed was finally released in a dramatic tarmac plane swap after the Biden administration agreed to exchange him for Konstantin Yaroshenko, a Russian pilot who'd been serving a 20-year federal prison sentence in Connecticut for conspiracy to smuggle cocaine. The Trevor Reed story should focus our attention on another imprisoned U.S. citizen in Russia, WNBA All-Star Brittany Griner. And indeed, judging by trending topics across social media, it has. Since mid-February, Griner has been detained in Russia, awaiting a May 19th trial date where she faces ten years behind bars, five years at hard labor, for the alleged crime of having hashish vape cartridges in her bag at the airport. With Reed's release, Griner's supporters want to know that she is next. Now, if you've been reading this space, you know that I believe we need to understand Griner as a political prisoner. Partly because she has been paraded in front of Russian state media like some sort of six-foot-nine-inch prize. Partly because 10 years for allegedly having cannabis cartridges is obscene. Factor in that Greiner is a black queer woman in a country where national minorities and LGBTQ people have been victims of targeted harassment. And the urgency to secure her freedom only grows. Now, the State Department and the WNBA has preached silence. In the hope that Griner would not become the kind of high profile political prisoner Russia could use like a pawn on a chessboard. But that's wishful thinking. Of course, Griner was always going to become a political prisoner. This was easier to predict than the success of an attempted Griner slam dunk. It is past time that supporters shed their silence and spoke out for her return. They only need to take a cursory look at Trevor Reed's case and the activism of Reed's parents done with one millionth of Griner's cultural capital to see that this could prove to be a positive approach, or at least a more positive approach than doing nothing. The possibilities could be seen in how the release of Reed spurred a long overdue public discussion about Griner. The State Department commented on the matter with spokesperson Ned Price saying to CNN, when it comes to Brittany Griner, we are working very closely with her team. Her case is a top priority for us we are in regular contact with her team. Now, one of the reasons, or justifications, much of the sports world has used for their silence regarding Griner has been that they were following the wishes of Griner's wife, Sherelle, who asked for privacy and quiet. But on Wednesday, Sherelle broke her silence with a statement posted on Instagram, where she said, as I do everything in my power to get Brittany home, My heart is overflowing with joy for the Reed family. I do not personally know them, but I know the pain of having your loved one detained in a foreign country. That level of pain is constant and can only be remedied by a safe return home. For the Reed family, that day is today. Welcome home, Trevor. Sending love to you and your family on this special day. This heartbreaking, gracious statement should be seen as a cue to recognize that Griner's best chance at freedom is not hoping for the benevolence of the Russian legal system or the stealth expertise of the State Department. It will be in our exercising whatever improbable back channel freed Trevor Reed and demanding that Brittany be freed. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports Podcast. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week. Stand up! I mean, this one's a little bit of an odd one for me this week because I really want to see standing up right now. The people who have been championing uh, Brittany Griner and Brittany Griner's release. Um, Stand up and stand up tall court case is May 19th. I mean, so by the time you're listening to this show, we're under three weeks um, until Brittany Griner is going to stand in front of a Russian judge and find out whether she goes to prison for 10 years, five years in hard labor. So for everybody who's been saying we need to raise the volume on this case, good for you. Keep standing up. Uh, The just is your ass down. Sit your ass down sit your ass down, or the people who are saying that being quiet for Brittany Griner is somehow going to bring her home. It's just not happening. Uh, the, the strategy of quiet, the strategy of accept frankly, the strategy of accepting the way that the sports world is too quick to ignore women athletes, particularly in the WNBA, and trying to turn that reality into a virtue. I'm, I'm done with that. I'm absolutely done with that. There, there are two wings of people in the sports world. Uh, first and foremost, you've got the wing of folks who are not talking about Brittany Griner because they think they're doing the right thing uh, with regards to the advice they're getting from the State Department. And then you've got the people who aren't talking about Brittany Griner because she's not Tom Brady, basically, um, and because they ignore and disrespect women's sports. Um, and the people I want to just sit down are the people in that first category, the people who do care about Brittany Griner, but are being silent but are somehow taking that larger silence from the sports world as a uh, virtue, that they're turning into a virtue out of a reality, and the reality is sexism. So that's what really needs to change in a big way. Um, we need to start getting the people who are worried about Britney Griner to call out the rest of the sports world to start speaking about Britney Griner in advance of the May 19th case. Now's the time for the part of the show that we call Kaepernick Watch about the latest of what's happening with Colin Kaepernick. The main thing I wanted to mention this week is this interesting thing that's developing where Mark Davis, the guy who runs the Las Vegas Raiders, don't call them Oakland, don't call them Los Angeles. That's what you'll call them in a few years. um, He's saying that if the team wanted to sign Colin Kaepernick, he'd be all for it. But he doesn't make the decisions to be hearing more of this from NFL franchise owners this idea to try to change history as if they weren't the ones who are the motor keeping out of the sport and all I want to say is until you see Colin Kaepernick's name on the dotted line somewhere don't believe any of this stuff because they've long decided that Colin Kaepernick has more value As a warning shot against young players who might want to speak out, than he does as somebody who can contribute to an NFL team. It's pretty disgusting. The calculus is gross. It's anti democratic. For all the people who are talking about free speech on Twitter, they don't seem to care about free speech for Colin Kaepernick. Um, So keep in mind the hypocrisy and keep in mind that we shouldn't even entertain the idea. Uh, that the NFL has shifted its position on Colin Kaepernick until Colin Kaepernick is actually in a uniform. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you. Thank you so much to our guest. Uh, What a terrific guest, Simon Rosenblum-Larsen. His article in The Washington Post, people should look it up, is called, I'm a minor league pitcher. Why can't baseball pay a living wage? Uh, Thank you so much to the producer of this podcast, David Tigabu. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.